it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook. Well, welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game. Bruce Devlin this morning. All I can say about our guest is I love to watch his golf swing when I was a young man. Well, he's he's certainly had a pretty golf swing. But i got to say one thing to him, first of all. Thank you for your service. Bruce, thank you. Thank you very much. It was one of the best and worst things I did. Yeah, we we understand that, and we, we appreciate the fact that you did, in fact, get uh, – Served in the Army in Vietnam and uh, hadn't played golf until you got back. And then, boy, what a career. You've had three major championships, 41 professional victories around the world. And uh, it is indeed a great pleasure to have Larry Nelson with us today. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you. It's good to join you here. Y'all have had some great guests. And uh, I'm just just happy to be a part of it. So, but thank you. Larry, thanks for joining us. And uh, as we've talked about, we want to tell your story today. And so uh, we typically start right at the very beginning. I know you were born in Fort Payne, Alabama, but spent a lot of your early years growing up in Ackworth, Georgia. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Yes, I was born in uh, Fort Payne, Alabama. Uh, Fort Payne was the closest place for my mom to get to to have me. Uh, We were raised actually in Crossville, Alabama, um, up on Sand Mountain. And um, so I just had just normal, you know, four-year childhood, I guess, up to that point. And my dad worked in a body shop, had his own body shop, but uh, decided to go to Detroit to work for uh, GM, I think, is who he went to work for. And we were up there for only six months, moved back to Georgia, Kennesaw, Georgia, where he took a job at Lockheed uh, Aircraft. and. so he worked there for, I guess he retired there 35 years later or so. Um, but just kind of a normal childhood, loved being outside, loved uh, hunting, fishing, um, just all the stuff. But uh, played baseball. My father loved baseball. Um, so he was kind of teaching me how to play from the time I was old enough to walk. Um, ended up playing baseball, basketball, and football in high school. Um, and, uh, really if I had to have picked a professional sports career, it would have been baseball. Uh, golf was definitely not on my radar. There wasn't a golf course. I think the closest one might've been 20 miles away. Um, and nobody in my family ever played golf. So, uh, that wasn't even, <laughs> I didn't even think much about it, but funny enough, the, uh, football assistant coach at uh, North Cobb High School, where I graduated, asked me to go out for the golf team. And I said, you know, that's, I don't play golf. And uh, plus, I didn't like what the kids wore playing golf. Uh, so <laughs> that was that was not not something that, uh, you know, I, I said, no, I don't think so. But it's, it's funny, years later, I ended up playing with him, um, you know, when he kind of retired and then uh, I was playing the tour. So uh, it came around full circle there, I guess that that way. But um, I got uh, actually I was going to school on a baseball basketball scholarship and um, didn't have the money to do some of the things some of the other boys were doing when we went on trips. And so I decided, well, I'd just take off one quarter work, make enough money <clears throat> and then uh, go back, uh, you know, go back to school. And during that time, I got a letter from the U.S. Army saying, 
you know, you've been drafted. This was 10 days after my 19th birthday and uh, I had to report 10 days later. So 20 days after my 19th birthday, I was taking basic training. Oddly enough, with uh, Fort Benning, uh, 60 miles away, I went out to Fort Hood, Texas. So I did all my training mm. in Fort Hood, Texas. Mm. So uh, during the training there, uh we would sit around with play cards or whatever. Um, this was after basic. And one of the guys there uh, went, he played golf for Miami Dade junior college and uh, he just loved golf. And he talked about it all the time. And I didn't tell him, I thought it was a sissy sport, you know, at that point. Uh, but, but anyway, after I got back from Vietnam, um, I hurt my arm, uh, pitched a ball game within 10 days after I got back from Vietnam. and. Hurt my arm, couldn't do that, which was my first love. And uh, so I only had one quarter or one one subject to, to finish my two-year engineering degree. And it was over at 9 o'clock. I didn't have anything to do from 9 o'clock in the morning until 6 o'clock when my wife, Gail, got home. And uh, so uh, there was a golf course just a mile from the school. and. Uh, it had a really good junior membership program, uh, and so I was able to join. And so, what a great way to waste ten hours a day <laughs> playing golf. <laughs> yeah, playing golf, and so that's what I did. And um, and that's kind of how my my golf career got started. Well, let's go back a, a little bit. Uh, you know, back. Uh, you say you're a multi-sport athlete, which, by the way, is. Pretty typical of many of our guests. Bruce, you'll certainly recall a lot of these guys talking about how important it was to be a well-rounded athlete. Yeah, and particularly uh, Paul, Paul Azinger said that, uh, you know, that was the one thing that uh, that he felt like uh, allowed him to be, you know, great hand-eye coordination playing and the team sport factor of it too, mm-hmm. where, you, where you got to realize that you just weren't the only person involved in that sport. So, uh and, you know, when you end up in golf, you end up being the only person involved in it. So uh, uh, we all know what that's like. It can be good and it can be bad. Well, it can. I think one of the reasons why I got kind of discouraged with baseball or team sports is that when you're pitching, I pitched a couple of really good ball games in the shortstop and make an error and I'd lose one to nothing. You know, I, <laughs> and I, I, I found that, you know, if playing golf, it's kind of up to you, yeah. you know. It's it's you you have to play your bad shots as well as your good ones and but I think there were probably two things pitching really helped the mental side with the golf you know you get to where you you're not really focusing on how you do something but just doing it I mean when you're pitching to a guy with a you know bases loaded and three two count you know you can't think about mechanics you can't think about anything else you just kind of have to look and throw and trust you know all the practice and all that stuff and so I really think that helped me with golf and also I was a very good pool player um you know I know uh, you weren't a hustler though were you when you played well pool? I went to different towns and played I did but it was not <laughs> not in a hustling type thing oh, I just okay. went out there and told them okay let's go play you're better than me, then I'll pay you. If I'm better than you, you pay me. But I never tried to trick anybody or anything like that. And But I was good enough to where um, I didn't feel like that I was going to go anywhere and get beat. And But that's that's the mental side, too. Um, 
Uh, and I, you get to the point where you just look and shoot, you know, the neck, you have to look through holes or three balls ahead, uh, you know, when you're playing nine balls. So you learn kind of the, you know, what you have to think about. Uh, and, and I think that just really carried over into golf. I mean, golf is sometimes, uh, even though you, you're only focusing on that one shot, but you're also focusing on where you should play the next shot from. And so, so it's, it's similar that way, but I think the mental side, um, those two, the baseball and the, the pool playing really helped. And, uh, I know if you're like me and like many of us, uh, our vintage baseball was sort of the sport of our childhood. Uh, you know, especially growing up in a small town, a lot of it has all, that's all we had was a ball glove, a bat, a, a baseball, and then a ball diamond and, uh, no swimming pool, no movie theater in my little town, I know. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that's just what you did. And, and oftentimes we did it all day. Well, for sure. And I, I probably, my hand and eye coordination, Bruce, you kind of alluded to that. Uh, we used to just uh, stand out in my gravel driveway and somebody would throw gravel and I would be hitting it with a broomstick. So and you're thinking about the size of a gravel and the size of a broomstick. You get pretty good at, uh, you know, baseball seemed pretty big at that point and, uh, and you're hitting it with a bigger bat. So I think there were things that we did that uh, probably helped and hand-eye coordination. Now you don't see too many gravel roads. And <laughs> so, uh, as people have to go to batting cages and they do all that stuff now. And, you know, we just, we had to do it all ourselves and just figure out what was the best thing to use to, to kind of enjoy hitting something. And uh, so you could hit those, you'd be pitching those gravels at somebody that's got a broomstick and you can hear that thing whiz by your head. <laughs> it comes by. So, Anyway, it, it, I think a lot of that uh, when I was younger. Uh, I definitely think it helps. Yes. Speaking of hitting something, did you ever play bottle cap baseball? We played a lot of that in the back of taverns when I was a kid. Well, I, you know, I, I'd seen it played, but I didn't spend much time in taverns. So it was one of those. <laughs> I, now, I spend a lot more time now than I did then. But, uh, yeah, it's a good place to be. You can learn a, you can, you can learn a lot of stuff in a tavern, yeah. Who'd, who'd you follow as a kid in, in baseball? Braves weren't around yet. They were up in Milwaukee. No, a guy like Whitey Ford, uh, you know, I, and Roger Marist and Mickey Mantle. All those guys were heroes to everybody. I mean, it, you know, baseball, you know, we didn't have a team here in Atlanta. The only team we had was uh, the Atlanta Crackers. <laughs> they played down at Ponce de Leon Field. And I remember going down there quite a bit. But Every small town actually had a, I wouldn't even call it semi-pro, but they had adults that played baseball and they had the uniforms. And every little small town had a uh, some sort of baseball field with stands and that kind of stuff. So we, you know, we spent a lot of time there, probably chasing foul balls more than anything when I was younger. Um, so it was it was very popular, uh, and uh, since it was so time-consuming. Uh, and we only had three channels on the television. This was something that uh, you know was good for us to do. You you glossed over your Vietnam career pretty quickly, but uh, reflecting back on that, Larry, uh, how did that experience change you, or or uh, uh, cause you to uh, to look at life a little different when you come back? And even today, uh, what, how would you reflect on that experience? How it uh, impacted your life? 
Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pam and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Yeah, of course, I trained. I trained to go to Vietnam for 18 months. Um, and when I finally got over there, I, they promoted me to E5. So I, in 20-some-odd months, um, I went from private basic training to E5. I was a team leader in an infantry squad over in Vietnam. And uh, so it, I think the biggest thing probably um, was that I was really happy just to see the sun come up every day. And um, still today, I'm still happy to see the sun come up. Uh, it, at night, um, I mean, it's a scary thing. I mean, it, it, every night it was, and sometimes our trip wires would go off and the flares would go up and you actually didn't know, you know, whether it was an animal, whether it was a bunch of people yeah. coming at you or what, I mean, you, you really didn't know. And so that was kind of a bad time. Not only could you see what was out there, they could see you too. So, uh, anyway, every time, every day the sun came up, uh, felt like that, uh, we were blessed. And so. I think that's pretty much the biggest thing. And I I think for all that, uh, you know, when you're getting shot at every day, uh, a 15-foot putt doesn't really bother you much anymore. I mean, uh, you know, the the good and the bad, it means, it means something to you personally at the time, but it's not life or death. Yeah. Yeah, that's so a, perspective, I guess, would be a word that would come to mind. Yeah, yeah there, there, it is a different perspective, sure. Uh, you'd mentioned, uh, and I and I, uh, uh, I made a note of this fellow's name, if this is who you were talking about that uh, sort of uh, got you thinking about golf, uh, remember the name of Ken Hummel. Is that the fellow? Yeah, Ken Hummel. Uh, I see him. Uh, we would go down and play uh, the Legends event down in Boca, and he would bring – he had he had boys uh, that he was teaching golf, um, and he would bring the boys up. I, I would see him every time, every year when I'd go down there, which – you know, it's really uh, looking back, uh, you know, I see guys that uh, assistants that I played golf with uh, when I was assistant for a couple of years. Um, and, and they they think it's really strange that I did what I did. And I tell them I think it's strange that I did what I did. And uh, so I look back on, on my career and just says, you know, was that me? Because it was not. You know, I, I see guys, see juniors, uh, you know, kids on the putting green say, okay, I'm making this putt for to win the U.S. Open or PGA or whatever. And um, I actually did that, um, not thinking that that was ever going to be a possibility when I was younger. So uh, I'm still I'm not in awe of myself. I'm just in awe of the whole situation. Yeah, 
Bruce, as, as we've talked about with other guests, uh, you all have your own unique stories, don't you, of how you got started in the game. But I think Larry sort of stands apart from most. Most definitely so. Like like we said at the start, you know, anybody that had to go through what he went through when he was a young man. And and by the way, he would, he'd just got married too before he headed to Vietnam, which I'm sure... Uh, I'm, I'm sure his wife, Gail, wasn't too happy about either. But uh... No, she was 17 and I was 19. We headed to Texas right before we got married. I didn't even have a place to live. And my responsibility was to try to find a place to live before we got married. But there were so many people in Fort Hood, Texas then. The closest place I could find a place to live was Lampasas, Texas, right. um, which right. which is the cricket capital of the world. If people hadn't been there, I mean, he, you couldn't walk down, <laughs> you could not, you could not walk down the streets and land passes the sidewalks without stepping on a cricket or <laughs> trying to keep from it. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. But um, actually, we had to, I had to dodge, uh, dodge the uh, the uh, uh, what you call it the little thing you. Armadillos? Yeah, or? the armadillos. That's it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the way to Fort Hood every day from Lamb Passes. But um, yeah, she was a trooper. And, uh, you know, we've been married 54 years now. And um, it, 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 I think all of us can look back on what, uh, what happened in the early stages and, you know, all through the career. And, I mean, she had as much responsibility of all this as I did. Uh, so. Sure. Um, it's um, remarkable uh, when you think about a 19 and a 17 year olds getting married mm-hmm. and making $64 yeah. a month. I think that's what we're making and uh, okay. trying to deal with that. We kept our money in envelopes <laughs> to keep, you know, this was for food, this was for this, and this was for that. So, but it was, it, it's great. And I think, you know, you learn things there that uh, you don't even know you learned, uh, that it's helpful later on. So back to Fort Hood for one minute. You know, each year, the, this coming April uh, will be the 11th tournament that we've put on at Fort Hood for all the soldiers. Oh, really? Yeah, we do it. We go down there under the Ben Hogan Foundation and huh. put on a, a tournament for 200 uh, soldiers, take gifts down for them and their wives and kids. Huh. And we have teachers come down with us. It's a... You know, it's, a, it's our way of saying thank you for all those young men that uh, that protect us. You know, I, you know, I would love to do that sometime, Bruce. If you, I mean, I'd love to go down there. I mean, it's a, well, you know, I, we 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 would meet generals and captains and lieutenants, but the highest ranking people in the army were civilians. I mean, I, everyone wanted to be a civilian. Nobody wanted to be a general at that point. We just wanted to kind of get through basic and go, but. It's really neat, and Fort Hood, very unusual. Um, you know how large it was, and I, I was, I was probably on part of every four hundred and twenty-five square miles of that base. Yeah. It's a quarter of a million acres, yeah. just about. So, so here's 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 the deal. I will send you an invitation to come with us when we go next April. Huh? I'll give you the dates and all, and if you can work it out, I'm telling you the soldiers would be. In raptures, if you'd come down there and talk to them, I mean, they'd love. No, that's it. great. I, I'm doing a lot of stuff with veterans right now in different places, but that that would be something that um, uh, would bring back a lot of good memories now. Um, and yeah, you know that there is life after army. 
And um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I think it would be great if you'd do that. That'd be terrific. And if it works out, I'd I, love to I do will. it. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank right. you, Larry. That would be wonderful. So, Larry, take us through how your game developed, how you learned. Uh, 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 you know, it, it's I, I know you you probably read and watched television and so forth, but just take us through how your game, how you learned it, and then sort of developed early on. Well, uh, Bert Seagraves, who was the uh, well, let me just I guess this part I was just playing golf and I would play by myself and um, because I didn't know anybody there at Pine Tree uh, and, and, and wasn't a very good player either. Uh, didn't know the rules, you know, nothing. I'd just go out and hit it and go find it, hit it again. And, uh, but uh, there, the pro there, Bert, um, he noticed that I was playing, noticed I was out there a lot and, um, after a started in the spring, uh, March, uh, Gail, by the way, bought me a set of clubs in Christmas that year of 1970. And, uh, so I had a set of clubs and didn't know how to use them, but, uh, Bert took an interest in me and, uh, he said, well, if you want to know the game, just read this book. And it was the five fundamentals of golf, Ben Hogan wrote and uh said sure that's fine it's great and uh so i played you know learning as much as i could and then his assistant left um and he was looking for an assistant and so i go in there and i just tell bert i say bert you're this and i said i'm hanging around here all the time i know your assistant's leaving he says could i work for you and um he thought about it for just a minute or two and he says well we can try it and see if it works and so I ended up working for him for two years. So I was an assistant there at Pine Tree for two years, uh, 1970 to 72, and uh, learned as much as I could about golf and uh, just, uh, you know, would go out and play with the green superintendent because I could play with him. He was there early on, early every morning. So I was there when light came up, played nine holes or however much time we had to play, and then I would open the shop. Uh, so... Um, he was probably the best player at the club, you know, at that point. And Bert tells the story. He says, I'd go and, and Roy Jordan was his name and Roy would beat Larry. And then after six months, Larry was beating Roy. Beat Roy. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so it was one of those, but I worked as an assistant for two years. And I think there were two things specifically that I think helped me to improve. Well, three, if you count the book, you know, reading the book, but, um, Bert would say, uh, Larry, you have uh, 30 minutes if you want to go down and hit some balls. Um, and so I didn't take any time to put on my golf shoes, my spikes or anything. I'd go down in my leather sole shoes and uh, hit balls and developed really good balance. I mean, the guys on the tour were amazed that I could go out and hit balls with no spikes on uh, because that's that's how I learned, you know, I, I'd probably hit more balls with my spikes off than my spikes on. And the other thing was I had to pick up the range. Well, a little quick story. I was changing the spikes in my shoes. You know, <laughs> I hated that anyway, but, um, I mean, it would just wear you out. And uh, so I wanted to change spikes because I was going to go out and play with one of the members. And uh, so... After changing it, my right arm was just weak. My right hand and my right arm from doing all that twisting and trying to get those things loose. And went out and played and shot 67. Best round I'd shot up to that point. 
And I started thinking, I said, yeah, the only thing different with this is the fact that my all of a sudden my left arm was as strong as my right arm. And so from that time on, I would go pick up the balls out on the range. And we had a ditch in the middle and, of course, woods and all that stuff. And I just I would go out there every day and hit all the balls out of the ditches and out of the woods with my left arm, my left hand. And so instead of trying to get my right arm weaker, I tried to get my left arm stronger. And uh, being a right-handed pitcher, thrower, and all that kind of stuff, I think that was the biggest thing. The combination of the leather sole shoes and the strengthening of left arm really helped me get better quicker. That's why I had that beautiful timing that you like so much, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and tempo, just beautiful, beautiful tempo and balance. So your game developed, uh, you got help from Bert and others uh, during this time, but it developed pretty quickly, didn't it? I mean, if if I read this correctly, you broke 100 the first time out, and within nine months you broke 70. Is that right? That's correct, yes. That's Um, unreal. Well, yeah, it was, you know, I would, I would shoot, uh, 68 and then the next day, 95. So it was, so it was not like that my game got, you know, just honed in better. Yeah. It, it just, uh, I knew I, I could hit good shots, but I didn't know how to play. I mean, I honestly didn't know how to play the pine tree, I think had two or three bunkers on the whole golf course. So I tell people when I qualified for the tour, it took me 10 years to learn how to play out of a bunker. Um, I mean, it's just one of those things. And I didn't chip very much. Uh, Chipping was boring. Putting was boring. But I loved to hit driver. I loved to hit five irons and all that. So uh, it I think it 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 took me a little while once I was able to hit it where I wanted to hit it. um, I had a hard time playing my missed shots in the. so I think that was uh, probably the biggest thing I had to learn once I qualified. But I worked for Bert for two years in a, as an assistant. I actually thought, well, maybe I would just be a club professional. I, I enjoyed being around people and enjoyed being around the club. And I applied for this job uh, in Cartersville, which was about 12 miles away. <clears throat> Came down to two people, uh, and the other person got it, had a much, much more experience than I did. And he got it. I was disappointed because it had been a huge raise. Yeah. <laughs> My monthly. Money. Yes. <laughs> and um, so uh, some of the members there uh, had seen my game progress. And uh, so they just came up and said, well, why don't you go try to play? Uh, so you can imagine that conversation going uh, yeah. from and now I go home and ask Gail uh, or talk to her and say, uh, you know, um, some people want me to go try to play golf for a living. And, uh, and she said, what, you know, cause we were still getting, well, what do you do for a living? You know, this was yeah. three or four years into my tour career. Went, well, yeah, but what do you do for a living? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this was, uh, so we ended up going down, um, to Tampa for a year playing on the mini tours so that I could, qualify for the tour i mean we didn't know none of my family knew what the qualifying school was i didn't know that much about the qualifying school so uh, i went down to tampa i shot 71 72 and that was absolutely the best i could play that that was the best i could play i think i made 35 dollars um that tournament 
And but by the end of that 20 week series, I won a couple of three times. And uh, so the progression was pretty good. I mean, it's a great situation. The tournament was Monday, Tuesday, and then you're off Tuesday through the next Monday. So you kind of work on whatever you wanted to do. It was a great way to learn the game. Um, and you could play in some of the the Florida tournaments, you know, the PGA, Florida PGA had tournaments. So you could occupy yourself competitively as much much as you wanted to. And um, so then it came around to 73. I uh, went to the tour qualifying school and made it the first time. Um, finished 21st they were giving 20 i think it was 23 in ties and i finished 21st um and never had to go back to school again kept my card and all that so um so it was you know one of those things it was just kind of quick uh i was down in tampa with guys who had been to the qualified school two or three times um and this was what they lived for and i went down there not knowing you know, ignorance is bliss, basically. And uh, so I went through and didn't learn what the tour was like. All of a sudden, I got a locker by Jack Nicholas. <laughs> Nelson and Nicholas. Yeah. How about yeah. that? Yeah. So, so anyway, learning. But it was, it was quick. We didn't know that much about the tour. Um, and uh, every, I mean, it's been a learning process every year. Pretty good class of uh, qualifying school that year. Ben Crenshaw, Gil Morgan, Gary McCord, Mark Hayes, Joe Inman, Terry Deal, some names that people would recognize. Oh, it was amazing. Of course, I didn't get uh, I didn't start off quite as well as Crenshaw did. Uh, I qualified for San Antonio that year, but the year he won his first PGA Tour event. Uh, so, yeah, it was a good group of guys. And I was down there with... Uh, um, you know, uh, college players you know, that that were number one in the states, best college player, and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, I, I was, you know, two or three years earlier, I was reading magazine articles about Crenshaw and Curtis Strange, and you know those people. So to all of a sudden, you know, be playing with them, um, it, it just seemed unreal. So just to recap for our listeners, the professional career of, of Larry Nelson, uh, as Bruce said, at the top 41 professional wins, including 10 PGA Tour victories, three wins on the European Tour, four wins on the Japanese Golf Tour, 19 senior wins, which, by the way, puts him tied 12th with George Archer for most wins on the senior circuit, and highest world ranking 12th in 1988. Uh, outstanding record, of course, the, the highlights uh, on the tour – on the regular tour would be the three major championships, which we'll talk about the 81 PGA at Atlanta athletic club, the 1983 U S open at Oakmont, and then finished up with the 1987 PGA championship at PGA national. But let's talk about, uh, let's talk about just getting out on tour and, and, uh, and finding your way to that first win, which I believe was the 1979 Jackie Gleason in classic in Fort Lauderhill, Florida, as I recall, by three over Greer Jones. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, you talked about my highest ranking. Uh, what was it, 1988? I think that was the first year they had the ranking. I don't know exactly what year that was, but I know it was started somewhere around in there because 1979, I finished second on the mind list to Tom Watson. Um, I won twice, finished second twice, and 
So it, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, the ranking started later, and I think it was actually started by AMG. Um, it was. So yeah, Mark McCormick, sure. Yeah, so they could get Greg Norman at number one ranking or something. So uh, sure. that was that was you know what happened back then. But uh, anyway, the yeah seventy nine. Um, you know the tour when we started, it was uh, you had to qualify on Mondays to play, of course. And uh, uh, when you qualified for the tour, you actually just got a card so that you could actually qualify for a tournament. It gave you the ability to qualify. So. Um, and back then, if if you finished in the top 25 uh, of any given tournament, you were exempt for that tournament the next year. Um, so if you played decent, um, then and of course if you made the cut, then you could qual you could play next week without having to qualify. So um, starting in '73, of course, was my and I had three tournaments I played in then, which I qualified for all three of them. Uh, but 74 was actually my first year. And the uh, first 11 weeks in 74, I either qualified and missed the cut or didn't qualify. Uh, so I was beginning to think, well, maybe this wasn't wasn't a good idea. Yeah, it wasn't what I needed to do. Um, and actually, I end up shooting uh, like even or one under at San Diego and missed the cut. And so I think, you know, these guys are pretty good. I'm either going to have to get better or, you know, either go back to being an assistant or go back to Lockheed, one or the other. And um, actually, I qualified in Jacksonville um, and finished eighth in Jacksonville, made $3,800. Um, and you only had to make 35 to retain your card. Uh, so the biggest thing was retaining your card. Uh, the next biggest thing was making enough money to eat. So, um, but that was that was kind of kind of the turning point i guess um and then it got a little easier because of the top 25s a year before uh and making more cuts uh so by 76 um i was almost exempt i pretty much could play whenever i wanted to play and then after 76 i'd been exempt and i was exempt for the rest of my career um through the top 60 and all that kind of stuff and yeah Winning a major helps. Winning a tournament gives you a two-year exemption, and then when you win a major, it's a ten-year deal. And uh, so it was, you know, after eighty-one, um, playing the tour was not really not an option. I guess I was exempt from that time on. What What are your memories from that first victory back in nineteen seventy-nine? Uh, it was one of those things. <sighs> You know, I'd played good in a couple of tournaments, and um, but you finally get to the point where you, f you, your confidence kind of gets to your game level. Uh, some people's game level never gets to their confidence. So uh, <laughs> I, I was, I finally, I think my confidence got to, to the point where, you know, I felt like it was time. I was ready to win, and uh, and it was a hard day, wind blowing, and the guy who was in second place, I think was Mark James who um, played and wind all the time. So if anybody had an advantage going into the last day, it would probably have been him, but I played really good. And um, I think Greer Jones had finished second to Nicholas the year before. Um, so he knew the golf course really well, but um, I uh, just wasn't worried a word about anything. I was playing good and um, ended up winning the tournament and, 
that was kind of the start uh, for me. Um, it got me in the Masters. Of course, I live two hours from Augusta and had never been down there before. And somebody interviewed me and said, have you ever been? I said, no, I think I'll go when I'm exempt or when I'm yeah. playing. <laughs> and so then I, I got into that in the World Series of Golf. And there were a whole bunch of things that uh, that the winning in 79, first part of the year, really helped. Uh, and I ended up uh, winning um, at the Western Open. I actually got beaten a playoff the week before in Memphis. Uh, Gil Morgan chipped it in to beat me in Memphis, and then I was in the second playoff in a row with Crenshaw up at Western. I ended up winning, uh, winning the tournament at the Western. So um, that was a tough golf course too, Butler National. That was about. I played with Bruce. Bruce, you remember I'm playing with you the last round. I don't know if it was that tournament. Or when the guy, the telephone, the camera guy moved your ball in the rough. I, you got it. Yeah. That was when it was. 79, was it? or 79. All right. Yeah, yeah that was one of the worst breaks I'd ever seen, I think, from, because then you either had to drop it, and it was a worse live. You can, and that's not a hole you want to be hitting out of the rough in the <laughs> green. Not quite. No. <laughs> But anyway, that that started. I ended up playing at the Ryder Cup that year. It got me in the Ryder Cup, uh, which I went five and zero, um, beating Seve four times uh, that that time. How good but, is that? Yeah, and uh, so started out my Ryder Cup career five and zero, uh, and yeah. then uh, of course my next one in eighty one, I went four and zero. So my first nine matches in the Ryder Cup, I won. How about that? That's some record. So uh, uh, coming off that win at uh, at at, uh, at Butler National the following year, you won uh, near to home one of two victories you had in Atlanta at the Atlanta Classic. Uh, the first one by seven, mm. and this is at Atlantic Country Club, which you mentioned earlier, by seven over to Andy Bean and Don Pooley. So you kind of ran the table on that one. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I um, My caddy had worked for me for, hey, he was with me when I won uh, in 79 and all 79 and so I'm playing good. And, you know, in the 80s, we didn't have the scoreboards, all the electronic scoreboards and all that kind of stuff. And they may have a scoreboard every two or three holes. If you're fortunate, they may have one every hole somewhere, but not too many people on it. And so I get my hit my drive in the middle of the fairway on the 18th hole, not knowing kind of how I stood or anything. And I looked over at my caddy because I figured he was watching the scoreboard. Um, and I asked him, I says, if I make bogey on this hole, uh, will I win the tournament? And, and he said, uh, yeah, if you make bogey on this hole, you'll win by six. <laughs> so I, I knew I was playing pretty good, but I didn't know relative to everybody else how I was playing. And so it was kind of nice. And I'm, I'm actually a scoreboard watcher. I'm not one that doesn't want to look at the scoreboard, doesn't want to know where he is. I'd love to know where I am, but it's just that day we just didn't have the opportunity and all that. But um, I've got to tell you, uh, as far as Atlanta Country Club goes, uh, my first time I qualified in 74. Uh, they didn't give me an exemption, by the way, but uh, I qualified for the tournament in 74. First time my mom and dad had actually seen me play tournament golf or as a professional and uh, or see me play at all. But uh, my father did not play, but he was my biggest coach through all the sports and stuff. And so I played terrible. I, I just hit the ball everywhere, just was not very good. And 
So we were going back and, and they were sitting in the back seat. My mom and dad were, and we'd just gotten out of the entrance to the Atlanta country club. And my dad tapped me on the shoulder and he says, son, he says, listen, he said, I don't know much about golf at all, but he says, if, if I were you, I start trying to hit a little closer to where those flags are. <laughs> and I, and I tell people, Sage advice. Yeah, I tell people all the time, I said, I've been around Nicholas Trevino, you know, I've been through, and that was the best advice I ever. Yeah. Pretty good advice. That's good. Well, uh, moving on to 1981, which, um, we'll get to this later with the majors. That's, that's uh, the year you won Atlanta athletic club, the first of your two PGA championships, but, uh, you wanted the Greater Greensboro Open at uh, Forest Oaks Country Club in a playoff with Mark Hayes on the second playoff hole. Yeah, that was. Yeah, tell <laughs> us about that. Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, the Atlanta Times. First of all, I, I uh, took a caddy from Atlanta Country Club. I mean, I, I you know I changed caddies. It, it was one of those things. I, I I wanted someone to carry my bag, be on time, and shut up, and yeah, don't say anything negative. And so that was, that was pretty much. And so this, the guy who was a regular caddy at Atlanta country club, I said, you want a caddy for me at Greensboro? He said, yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, didn't realize at the time that, uh, that he was an alcoholic. I, I didn't have a, didn't have a clue, but I mean, he, uh, he was shaking, you know, the whole time. If you, you know, I, I don't know much about alcoholism, but I know that cause the shakes if you don't have alcohol or whatever. But anyway, we played four rounds. And I'm going into the last hole. I'm playing with Mark Hayes and Lee Trevino, last hole at uh, Green, uh, is it Oaks? Green? Forest Oaks. Yeah, yeah, Forest, Forest Oaks. Oaks. Yeah. Yeah. And we're playing, and it's been wet. It's been rainy, bad weather, cold. I hit my ball. I'm one shot behind. I hit my ball in the, the right bunker, pin high, deep bunker. Mark hits his on the back of the green. And um, maybe I'm two shots behind. You're two shots behind. Yeah. You are two shots behind. There we yeah. go. He hits his on the back of the green. We're walking after our second shots, and Trevino's congratulating Mark, you know, and all this kind of stuff, because nobody gets it up and down out of that bunker. And so, anyway, I hold it out of the bunker. And then um, he three putts. And so we end up tying. And so then I go. Uh, go on the, you know, I beat him on the second hole of the playoff. But uh, it was one of those things, it was an impossible bunker shot, but there was enough sand and it was wet enough that it slowed the ball down enough to go in the hole. But could you even, could you even see the flag? No, 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 I could not see. I could, I could see the top of the flag, but I could not see the bottom of the hole. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to get it up and down to finish second or third. I don't know exactly what it was at that point, but the ball, but it goes in the hole. And Mark was my best friend. I mean, he 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 and Jana, and I mean, they they they. So anyway, I hated it, but you know, golf is golf. I mean, you can love somebody but want to beat them at the same time. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. 
Then it started to slice just smidge off line It headed for two, but it bounced off nine My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay Yes, it went straight down the middle Quite a way